the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Zneimer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Cycling in Toronto is becoming more common, and as a city, we've certainly become more bike-friendly in recent years, but a recent Toronto Police campaign suggests there's a long way to go in keeping cyclists safe. We learned this past Tuesday Toronto police officers wrote over 1,600 tickets during their week-long Safety for Cyclists campaign in mid-June during Bike Month, and half of those were for aggressive driving. Filling in for Libby Snymer and to discuss cycling in Toronto, Jane Brown was joined by Gideon Foreman, Transportation Policy Analyst with the David Suzuki Foundation, and Toronto Police Sergeant Brett Moore. We run this campaign almost annually to support June uh, Bicycle Month uh, in Toronto, and uh, we also know that uh, school is about uh, it ends in June, and folks, uh, the, you know, the nice weather starts and people get their bicycles back out. But we're seeing more and more than than I'd say almost ever that cycling is far more than just a recreation, right? It's an active and main mode of transportation for people, especially in Toronto as we uh, develop more infrastructure. Uh, and so it's a good reminder for uh, for folks, uh, both uh, drivers and cyclists, uh, to uh, about some of the rules of the road, some of the challenges, and some of the facts uh, around uh, cycling road safety. That's an excellent point uh, when you think about it that way, that drivers in vehicles, drivers on motorcycles, riders on bikes, bikes are all, they all have the same goal in mind. They're trying to get somewhere in the city, whether it's to work or for recreation. It's their mode of transportation. For sure. And and I think because we're seeing a lot more folks uh, on bicycles, uh, that uh, it's it's that old saying of you've got to walk a mile in, in somebody's shoes. And, and I think one of the things that we try to paint by uh, putting on a campaign, because we know, I mean, a campaign, the uh, now, the work of, of enforcement happens every day, and a campaign is for seven days usually, and it, it's it's twofold. Yes, we do uh, you know no tolerance uh, uh, for excuses and uh, infraction enforcement, but also to create the opportunity for conversations because we know it's about behavior change that we're looking for people to change maybe risky behaviors, bad habits, and people don't change behavior because a cop tells them to, right? They do it because they think differently about the situation, right. and they sort of plant their mind and think, geez, you know, that could have been me. And those are the things that we want people talking about, thinking about differently. And if we can use our, our uh, the platform, uh, the privileged platform of a traffic campaign in a large city like Toronto, then we're going to do that and take those opportunities. We want to bring in another expert now with us. Gideon Foreman is on the line. He's a transportation policy analyst with the David Suzuki Foundation. He's also a cyclist in the city of Toronto. These police-initiated campaigns that Sergeant Moore and I have been speaking about. Are they working, in your opinion, to get drivers to change their behaviors? Well, I think they're an important component, Jane. I mean, and we're delighted that the police are doing these safety blitzes. It's great. It, it raises awareness, as the sergeant was saying, uh, to have that conversation. There's an educational piece. But I think it's not the whole story. We also need to make our streets safer by design from the beginning. So we need to do things like put in separated bike lanes, protected bike lanes. So there's a place for drivers and there's a place for bikes. We need to lower speed limits more because we know accidents are going to happen, but if they happen at lower speeds, they're less likely to be fatal. So there's some structural things that we need to do as well as the enforcement piece. How good is the infrastructure at the moment in terms if you could rate it for cycling in Toronto? We've certainly come a a long 
way in recent years, but we have a long way to go. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we're, you know, we're better than some cities. We're not quite as good as some others. If you've been to Montreal or if you've been to, well, the Netherlands is kind of held up. Uh, Amsterdam, for example, is held up as kind of the gold standard. We're not that level, but we have made some improvements. As you mentioned, we have a bike lane on part of Bloor Street now, which is a great step. We're looking at putting bike lanes on Danforth, which is really important. We want a full network across the city so you can go anywhere with a separated protected bike lane. We're starting to make some advances. We would like to see it happen sooner. And I think more important, the people of Toronto would like to see it happen sooner. The polling shows that about 80% of Torontonians support these protected bike lanes. We'd like to see them rolled out faster and more widely across the city. Yeah, I'd like to see an extension of the Bloor bike lane. It's been very popular. It has huge ridership now. It was a big uptick when they brought in the protected lanes. We'd like to see the bike lanes extended right out to High Park so that families can get out to High Park on their bikes safely. We'd also like to see a new bike lane on Danforth because, you know, we want a strong, safe east-west corridor for cyclists to the east end. We'd also like to see bike lanes uh, on Young Street. Uh, again, protected bike lanes so that people can ride safely. We think they'd be popular and they'd be good for everyone on the road, cyclists, walkers and drivers alike. Sergeant, your final comments? No, just uh, we appreciate the opportunities and, and are very genuine when we say that our, our campaigns are is just as much uh, about uh, conversations as it is about the tickets that we issue during them. Um, and so uh, we will not ticket our way. To, safe, to, to safer roads. The fastest way is for people to, to, to change some behavior, some of the risks that they take day to day, and, uh, and to, to use those opportunities of a campaign and the conversations to, to do something, to make a change, to do something different, whether it be turn your phone off if it's distractions or um, you know speeding on the roads, that kind of stuff. Double check, watch for the infrastructure around uh, the downtown cores, anticipate right? um, others to be around you to be using our roads. Toronto Police Sergeant Brett Moore and Transportation Policy Analyst Gideon Foreman. You're listening to The Best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Kopsik. Being fit at any age is vital to your overall health, but especially as we age. Over the last year, our Zoomer media colleague Liz Parker has gone through a journey to change her life and get fit ahead of her 50th birthday. Liz Parker is the digital content editor at our sister station in the new Classical FM, and she joined Jane Brown in studio along with her personal fitness coach and trainer, Keneela Lee. I've always been interested in fitness, and I've done a lot of cardio, but I wanted to develop more strength and get my muscles in tone, and I wanted to approach aging in a healthy humorous manner, basically. So I decided the lead up to 50, my goal was to do one unassisted chin up. So I signed up for a personal trainer uh, for a year, twice a week in order to accomplish that goal. And that's how I met Kanila. So Kanila, when Liz joined you, when you first met her, what was she looking for? What did she say to you? She said that because of her Asian genetics, and, uh, <laughs> she was able to squat properly and that I, she would be consistent and committed. And I think those are the skills that anyone can have and anyone can um, actually, like, it doesn't require anything, but just your commitment and your motivation. And that's all it requires. And she said, anything you'll make me do, I might, um, like roll my eyes and stuff like that, <laughs> complain, grunt, but I'll do it. And in terms of progress, I want to hear from both of you on how Liz has progressed over the course of a year. 
So um, we've been um, actually very consistent. Um, it's almost been a year now, and she's able for regarding her pull-ups. She's almost there. Mm-hmm. We have been um, working on different variations of her pull-ups, working on um, strengthening her back, working on core. And on top of that, we worked on big compound movements because she wanted to get strong overall. And um, throughout this year, we came across some obstacles um, together, um, some knee problems. Um, as we age, we know that um, joints become stiffer, mm-hmm. arthritis, osteoporosis, things like that. So what we did was to um, keep moving um, so that we can lubricate all her joints and get stronger overall. And in terms of your perspective, Liz, Mm -hmm. uh, your progress through this journey? Well, I'd like to answer that by saying, uh, for those of you listening on the radio, we are all in the plank position as we do this interview. (laughs) Just so you know how strong we all are. (laughs) And this Um, is why I love working with Liz. (laughs) It's been actually amazing. Um, Like, the discipline aspect was not a problem for me at all. Like, I showed up uh, even when I wasn't feeling well or hadn't slept well. The only time I didn't show up if I was sweating in bed sick. Um, And that sense of discipline and work ethic really comes from the fact that I have your stereotypical tiger mom who's from Japan, and I respond very well to strong, disciplined Asian women, like my personal coach here, um, as well as my ballet teacher, who is from mainland China. And also, I study classical piano very seriously for most of my life, and there's a strong sense of discipline. And every time Kenila showed me a new move or a, the proper form and technique, it brought me right back to the days of having to do scales with the proper fingering, chords with proper fingering, arpeggios, all of that stuff that I learned doing Beethoven and Mozart sonatas applied directly to fitness. I couldn't believe the similarities. And I also study classical ballet. So that connection is a little more obvious because it's of the body. But the whole discipline, technique, form, doing things properly so you don't strain your back, exactly the same as when I danced or was a musician because musicians have strain and physical issues as well. And how surprisingly appropriate working for Classical FM mm. and being a classical musician and a piano teacher, an yep. accomplished piano teacher, that you were able to make that connection to very different disciplines. Yep. And yet the way to get better at it and stronger at it and perform well at it is to just get in there and practice. Absolutely. Like I told her early on that if you say you know, have you been to the gym to work out? I won't respond quite as well as if you say, have you been here to practice? As soon as I hear practice, I I get it. I got to do the reps. So I think about practicing the moves over and over to excel as opposed to I have to work out at the gym. And I never really thought about weight loss or having a specific body type. I just wanted the ritual of healthy living to take shape more than anything else. And how do you feel? I feel empowered. Um, you know, I'm not concerned about what I look like as someone two weeks away from 50. I'm not worried about, uh, you know, the superficial side of things. It's more organic and within. And that is expressed physically. And yet you look great and you look toned. And you look healthy. Yeah, for those of you on the live stream, I want you to check out my arms. Um, she like gave those arms twice. to me. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and obviously that feels good from a, a vanity perspective, no question. But it's really the spirit and the soul that touches you. Liz Parker of our sister station, the new Classical FM, and her personal trainer, Kanila Lee, on Getting Fit at 50. 
I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. We're just a few months away from the one-year anniversary of legalized recreational cannabis in Canada. It was announced this past week by the Ford government. Ontario will get 50 additional cannabis retail stores as early as this October. Toronto will get 13 of them. On Fight Back this past Thursday, we explored how well the initial rollout of brick-and-mortar stores went and improvements made as a result of misses the first time around. Jane Brown was joined by Deputy NDP Leader Sarah Singh, Michael Armstrong, business professor at Brock University, and Attorney General Doug Downey to discuss. So we've learned a few lessons. We've, we've found that there is high demand in Ontario for the product. And we found that people like the retail element as well as the online store. Now, you have imposed some new requirements for this next round of licensees. Uh, can you expand on that for us? Yeah, we've changed the, the system for the, for the Phase 2 expansion. In the first phase, we had 25 stores. And, and in the second phase, we're doing 50 more. This time around, we're going to pre-qualify people. We need to know that the people going into the draw have the capacity to follow through and, and open those stores. Is this the best way to hold a lottery? There have been some suggestions that that an auction might be a good way of going about doing this as well. Well, there's there's different models you you could pursue. This is the one that we've chosen. We we think it works well, and we think it's it's equally fair um, to to allow, as you mentioned, some of the smaller individual businesses to participate and not just be swamped by by the big players. We're now going to go to Michael Armstrong, who's an associate professor of operations research at the Goodman School of Business at Brock University. Uh, He's an expert in this field as well in terms of sales of recreational cannabis. What do you think about uh, the new cannabis lottery rules? Because that has been the big difference between the first time around and the second time around. The original, I think, one of the original reasons to go with the lottery is to try and give everyone an equal chance, uh, whether it's the big corporations or small uh, independent sort of mom-and-pop uh, retailers. Uh, what happened was you got some people entering the lottery just kind of almost on a whim uh, without anything like a business plan or uh, financing or anything available. So they ended up, uh, in effect, uh, looking for partners, and those partners willing to, were willing to pay uh, big bucks for that privilege. The uh, reports coming out in the news suggested uh, some of the lottery winners were receiving offers of over a million dollars each. So that was money uh, that ended up going to somebody who just got lucky on the draw. Mm -hmm. Uh, If an auction had been held, uh, that's money that could have gone to the public treasury. So this time around, uh, I think the government should switch the auction system. The fact that they put in these financial prerequisites uh, to have $250,000 in cash available to have a store already, uh, location already set up, that's already ruling out some of the smaller players anyway. So why not just go with that and say, okay, let's have an auction. Let's let the big corporations uh, pay the province, and that is to say the taxpayers, uh, for the right to be among the first retailers to get their brand uh, reputations established. That's worth something. Let's have the province capture that value rather than uh, going out to lucky ticket holders. Uh, MPP Sarah Singh is on the line with us. We are living now in this world where we are selling legalized cannabis. Um, do you have more of an issue with that or with the way it's being sold and offered? 
I think, uh, you know, uh, our bigger issue is the way that it's being sold and offered. Uh, you know, the, the, the entire rollout uh, here in the province has, has pretty much been botched from the beginning. Uh, you know, we saw many of the, the brick-and-mortar stores, uh, you know, delayed in opening. Uh, you know, the process was really difficult for people to engage with. Um, and, and, you know, many of those shops still haven't even opened. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, irrespective of the tax conversation, I think uh, the, the rollout of, of uh, the legalization here in the province of Ontario has been a, a complete disaster. I think that we, we need to look at a, a, a program that is more socially responsible, that is going to give, you know, entrepreneurs the ability to thrive, but also ensure that, uh, you know, uh, users and people that would like to, uh, you know, consume recreational cannabis have access to that uh, so that they aren't forced to, uh, you know, access the illegal market in order to get recreational cannabis. Okay, and I'll give the final word to Michael Armstrong, our business professor at Brock University. The fact that you are shutting down the uh, illegal storefronts that are operating overtly uh, doesn't do anything about uh, demand, which means you're just driving it to black market uh, suppliers who are operating covertly. The guy in the back of the car, the person with the website, or the back alley. So the storefront shutting down is really premature uh, until there's enough legal stores. And that's the experience we're seeing in other provinces that are ahead of us in competing with the black market. It's a question of having enough stores, whether they're public sector or private sector, uh, is more of a secondary issue. Business professor Michael Armstrong, NDP, Deputy Leader Sarah Singh, and Ontario Attorney General Doug Downey. You're listening to The Best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick. Stress on the job. Are you experiencing it? Research suggests Canadian employers are spending more than $6 billion a year on lost productivity due to mental health issues. In fact, about a third of disability claims are due to mental illness as employees try to combat the stress of their jobs. Joining Jane Brown to talk about this important issue, Dr. Nisha Jackson, author of Brilliant Burnout, and Dr. Kati Kamkar, clinical psychologist at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. Burnout, of course, a very important issue, even though it is not a mental health, uh, it's not a psychological disorder or a mental health disorder per se. It is a significant mental health issue impacting health and performance. And certainly we know that the key symptoms of burnout, very different from depression and anxiety or stress, related, of course, but different, but the symptoms can be very much uh, disabling, so related to um, exhaustion, so emotional, physical, psychological exhaustion, the sense of cynicism uh, that might take in place, apathy, and of course the reduced uh, personal accomplishment. Explain for us uh, what mental health issues could look like in the workplace so that co-workers and bosses might see this ahead of time. Um, yes, absolutely. So it could be then we feel exhausted, emotionally, physically, uh, psychologically exhausted to the point that there is this immense level of fatigue, motivation can go down, uh, produ- performance and productivity goes down. And essentially what we notice is the sense of passion and zest that we had goes down. But what's also important within it is this reduced self-efficacy. Mm-hmm. So essentially um, it could be that we might have worked and done the same work for 
let's say, 30 years, and we might have been very skilled and competent at it. But here, there is this reduced pursuit self-efficacy. So we can say, you know what? I've been doing this for 30 years, but I really cannot see myself doing it anymore. And we also notice a, a sense of loss in the, you know, in the sense of self, in our identity. So, for example, uh, we feel that there is this distrust that is taking place. We might not trust ourselves. We don't trust others. There is this reduced uh, pleasure in activities uh, or distrust in others that I just mentioned. So it becomes very scary because we realize that, wow, I'm not the same person anymore. I do not recognize myself anymore. So, of course, gradually it can translate into behavioral changes. So, for example, it could be productivity going down. We might not attend certain meetings or the office door might be closed or we might not laugh as much as before or joke as much as before. So, obviously, over time it becomes very concerning and noticeable to others. And so if we're not able to catch those, some of those symptoms ahead of time, the over, and especially when we talk about chronic stress, over time, this chronic stress and sense of feeling that I'm losing control, I'm feeling powerless, I feel helpless, can lead into increasing the risk for burnout and certainly then um, increase the risk for psychological disorders and then also medical, physical conditions as well. We always want to keep in mind the mind-body connection. Let's go to Dr. Nisha Jackson, author of Brilliant Burnout, and who's developed a fast-track treatment plan to help relieve work-related stress. Nisha, Dr. Jackson, what, first of all, happens to our brains under excessive stress. You say they actually shrink. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, let's, let's face it. Today, there's so many pressures on men and women out there, which I think is moving into feeling like the workplace is the most stressful environment when, when indeed there's other things going on, poor lifestyle habits, we're not sleeping as well, our diet's filled with toxins, maybe we're not exercising as much as we should, which leads to hormonal imbalances, and thus, imbalances in the brain and so we wonder why at three o'clock in the afternoon when we feel like our head's going to blow off our shoulders and we're not reacting to stress very well and we're snapping at people and we're irritable no wonder we're doing that because all of our lifestyle habits and our hurried lifestyle and being constantly plugged in with all of these devices no wonder we're snapping and what's happening is is that the stress is causing an imbalance in our serotonin and dopamine levels in our brain, which is causing us to overreact. And people don't understand this. They're not connecting the dots between what they're succumbing themselves to, what, what, they're, what, they're, um, what, they're, what they're doing to themselves, and then thinking it's their job stress. And indeed, it really probably isn't their job stress. It's everything else put together that's affecting their chemistry in their brain, but also their hormone levels. Dr. Kamkar, I literally have 30 seconds for your final thoughts. I think that 30 seconds, I will say that it's always we need to take a holistic approach to care. It's very individualized. How for each of us to develop our own mental health package. So we talk greatly about the mind-body connection as well as what are some of the individual changes and responsibilities as well as organizational from an employer perspective, what we can do so that we can bring more awareness to burnout and move forward all of us together. Dr. Kati Kamkar at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, and Dr. Nisha Jackson, author of Brilliant Burnout. I'm Bob Komsik, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio, and here are some of the best calls of the week. Douglas called from Lake Scugog about the Ontario cannabis stores. 
I got introduced to marijuana in 1967. I've been smoking it all my life. Um, I'm asthmatic. I use medical marijuana for a reason. I've been to a few of these shops before it became legal. I don't trust it. I'm not paying Dougie Ford's uh, taxes. And I have a friend of mine who's got legally entitled to purchase marijuana. I, in fact, don't even have to, uh, have to pay for it. I can get other people, and the, my cost ends up to be zero. I'm telling you, uh, Dougie Ford should uh, uh, stop the taxes. Way too expensive to walk into one of these new uh, brick-and-mortar places. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Bruce, who called from southwestern Ontario to talk about staying fit at 70. I'm a 70-year-old guy, and um, I run 8 kilometers every second day. And on my alternate days, I'm a cyclist. I did 34 kilometers last night. Wow. And I'm still, you know, feeling uh, reasonably fit. I eat pretty much the same thing most days. Uh, I have a banana at breakfast uh, and then uh, and, a, and a cholesterol pill. And then at lunchtime, I have two or three apples and a cheese sandwich, um, a couple of cookies. And then I have a well-balanced meal <laughs> nice. at supper time, but I try to keep it fairly, fairly light. That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, Phone us from noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio AM 740, also 96.7 FM downtown. Or, if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Bob Comsick. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fightback. The best of Fightback is produced by Jane Brown, Michelle Saunders, Justin Eacock, and Kelly Robotham. 